Well, church, we are in Micah, the book of Micah, Old Testament book written 800 years before the coming of Christ, during a time when there was a captivity of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom would be going into captivity in about 120 years. But Micah's, the theme of Micah is God scatters, but he will gather. God scatters, he brings judgment, but he will gather. He will gather when Messiah comes. And so last week we looked at God scattering. In Micah 3, I talked about the two groups of people that seemed to find the most pointed reference in the writings of Micah, and those were the leaders and those were the prophets and the priests. He says, regarding the leaders in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, listen to this, you, you heads of the families of Judah. You rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? But you have hated the good and loved the evil. You tear the skin from my people and from their flesh off of their bones. In other words, they, they abuse people. They, they didn't take care of people. They used their positions of authority to, to put people down and to defraud them. And then he says about the, the preachers and the pastors and the priests. He says this, he says, Says, thus says the Lord, you lead my people astray, verse 5 of chapter 2, and you cry peace when they have something to eat, but you cry war when they have nothing to give you. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision. In other words, they were preaching for a price. If you gave them this much, they would say whatever you want them to say, but if you withheld, they'd cry out denunciation against you. And, And the Lord says, because of that, he says, I will hide my face, in verse 4, because of that. Jerusalem will be plowed as a field. Judgment is coming because, verse 10, because you built Jerusalem with the blood of the innocent and you built Zion with iniquity, judgment is coming. And so this is a very hard book and he says some very difficult things. And one manifestation of their behavior is found in chapter 2, verse 8, three things. He says, number one, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Secondly, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. We think this probably is the widows who had nobody to defend them, but these leaders seized their homes. And thirdly, he says, their children. He says, from the young children, you take away my splendor forever. You take away their inheritance because you seize the homes. He says, because of this, judgment is coming. And so this is a very strong book. And he says, be very careful with anything. Chapter 4 is a chapter of hope. He says there's going to be a scattering, but there will be a gathering. So we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man 
under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Well, first of all, he says in the latter days, and we believe biblically speaking that the latter days were inaugurated with the coming of Jesus and they carry on until his second coming. So we live in the latter days, the days that Jesus and following. Hebrews 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these latter days has spoken to us in his son, who's the exact representation of his nature. So, so the latter days. So this is the latter days. And when, as we're in the latter days, as you get a vision of the greatness of Messiah King, certain things happen in your life. So chapter 5 is a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And he says this in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. He says that the Messiah King will come out of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. It was a backwater, nothing village. In modern-day parlance, Bethlehem didn't even have a warning light, maybe not even a stop sign. It was a nothing little village. And yet, out of this nothing village in the backwater, way outside of Jerusalem, will come forth Messiah King who has been from ancient of days and he will stand and he will shepherd his people and he will be their shepherd and their king and he will give them peace. And, and so when you get hold of the promise of that, the promise of Messiah King, certain things happen in your life. And that's going to be what I'm talking about in verse four. I'm talking about four things that will happen in the life of a believer when they are arrested by the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the majesty of Jesus the eternal king who comes out of Bethlehem, born in a stable to a teenage girl who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, rose victorious over death. His name is Jesus. So we get a clear vision of Jesus. There's four things that happens. Number one, you, you love truth and you pursue it. Number two, you love peace and you pursue it. Number three, you are glad in the provision of God. And number four, you worship. That's what this passage says. So number one, when you see the glory and majesty of the king who is Jesus, you love peace or truth and you pursue it. Look at verse two. Many nations shall come to the kingdom. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Judah, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, so we, we, we not only love the truth, but we pursue it. See, it says, let us go up. 
Let us be people who, who cry out, Lord, teach us that we may walk in your paths. But we want to walk in the paths of the Lord because the paths of the Lord bring hope and prosperity and joy and a sense of well-being and the shalom of God to our lives. Listen to just a few verses in the Old Testament that use the same word, path or paths. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. We long for the path of the Lord to be revealed to us in the scripture. Psalm 25, verse 4, make known, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Verse 10, the same psalm, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. They're all steadfast love and faithfulness. Proverbs 4, verse 18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until full day. Brighter and brighter. Proverbs 15, verse 19, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Isaiah 2, verse 3, we will cry out, O God of Jacob, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. So so we, we long to walk in the paths of the Lord because they are paths that lead to hope and joy and the God's abounding goodness in our lives. So when you see the glory of Messiah King, you say, Lord, teach us. Lord, show us your way. Let let me ponder your truth. Let let me be a person and let me be a group of people that understands these things because it leads to joy and hope and fulfillment. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if you're my disciples, you'll abide in my word and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But you you abide and you know the truth. So you pursue it. You, You know it. You pursue it. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, happy is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of people who don't acknowledge God. And then verse 2 says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he will meditate day and night. He will be like a tree planted, planted by streams of water who produces his fruit in season and whose leaf neither withers and whatever he does prospers. I, I like that. Tree planted by streams of water, yields his fruit, leaf doesn't wither. There's an abounding blessing in the life. So I, I read that and say, God, show me your truth that I may walk in it. Proverbs, the first chapter, is a strong call to <clears throat> pursue wisdom. And in Proverbs 1, it says this, The last two verses. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. See, complacency means, you know, just you're phlegmatic. It's easy, no big deal. Just go through life. Don't just just do your thing. And, And the Bible says complacency kills. But, he says, whoever listens to me will dwell secure. So I read that and I say, Lord, teach me your way. Don't let me be complacent. So when you see the majesty of Jesus, Messiah, and King, you say, like Micah did in chapter 4, Lord, teach us. Lead us in your path. The second thing about seeing the majestic, glorious goodness of God is that you pursue peace. Verse 3, you say this, you say, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes. For strong nations far away, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their 
spears into pruning hooks. I, I just, it's just amazing to me how the Bible and the interpersonal relationships talks about the importance of being a peacemaker and how God honors people who pursue peace. For example, in the book of James, James says this, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every vile practice. But, see, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure and then peaceable or peace-loving, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And here's the promise. Peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. In other words, peacemakers who speak peace, who love peace, who see Jesus as their peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Here's the question. Do you pursue peace? Or do you live with a sense of boiling agitation and unforgiveness towards people? The sign of a believer in Jesus is they love peace. They'd rather be reconciled than always be right. <laughs> the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, and then it is peace-loving, it's full of mercy and good fruits. Now, we're in this election week, and it's uh, all-consuming. And I've read in various websites where there are major police departments throughout America who are preparing for violence and protest, whatever the outcome of the election might be. This past summer, we've had a summer of unrest where people would take bricks or they would take bottles of water and freeze them in their freezer and then throw them at men and women who are there to protect property. Um, it's despicable. It's wrong. And anybody who reads the Bible and understands the kindness of God would speak against something like that. Since World War II, I think it is, there's been something that was hatched in the Soviet Union called the Molotov cocktail, which is a very easy bomb to make, and you, you throw it. People have been throwing Molotov cocktails. You know, as I pastor this church, I do not worry about our people throwing Molotov cocktails. Uh, this is not going to happen. I, I'd be shocked, you know, except for the first couple of rolls down here. I, I don't know anybody to do that. But hear me. Don't you hear me? We can throw Molotov cocktails with our speech. We can use the Internet. We can use social platforms to say absolutely despicable things. Now, we may not throw a literal Molotov cocktail but we throw words that destroy. And so I, 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 I plead with you to guard your speech. Speeches can be an incendiary device as well as a Molotov cocktail. Now think of Colossians 4 that says, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. I think of 1 Peter 3.15 that says, Answer all people with dignity and respect. I've been studying the book of Proverbs just every day, just praying through a proverb and looking at it. And as I've gone through the last three or four months, I've been absolutely 
absolutely blown away by how many times proverb after proverb after proverb after proverb says, watch your speech, guard your speech. Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous is the fountain of life, fountain of life. So, so we speak the truth, absolutely, but, but, but we do so with grace and dignity. We do so realizing we're talking to men and women who are made in the image of God. So I would plead with you to be kind. And if somebody says, this is my position, you say, well, that's, that's their position. That's not, that, that's, that's fair game. But, but don't try to intuit the, 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 uh, the motivations of the heart. You don't know that. And if at all possible, always give people the benefit of the doubt. So be careful. Pursue peace. I, I am... I am absolutely uh, awestruck by the person of Jesus. The more I read the Gospels, the more I think, the more I go, he was a man in full. He, he was. He is the end result of our sanctification. We want to be, we're supposed to be like Jesus. And, and, and I'm also incredibly sometimes flummoxed by, by what people say about Jesus. I hear people say all the time that you know, Jesus was just... Uh, he was just really easygoing, and he was just kind of one of the guys. And I'm going, well, he, he was very accepting. He embraced people. He touched the outcast. He touched lepers. He welcomed children that people tried to shoo away. He loved a woman who had a blood flow of 12 years, and she touched him, making him supposedly unclean. All, all those things, I, I know that. But, but he also overturned the tables of the money changers, you know? Um, he also would look around at times, it says, deeply grieved in his heart at people. And then I turn to Matthew 23, which is just, I mean, it is a hard chapter. In Matthew 23, Jesus rains down woes on the Pharisees and the scribes who are misleading the people. And, and he gives, we call it the seven woes, and it's just all about men who are abusing their position and leading people astray. And, and then you get to the end of the woes, and this is what Jesus says, and this is just in your face. There's nothing in Matthew 23 you'll ever read in a greeting card. Not one sentence. I mean, it is just hard. This is what Jesus says. Fill out then the measure of your fathers. Verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I've, I've seen you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Basically says, and your blood is on your hands. I mean, this is right here. He says, you brood of vipers, you're misleading people, you're turning the truth upside down, you're leading people astray. And so he gives out these strong words, but, but then... This whole chapter, this all about was, it ends with this statement. This is what absolutely blows my mind. After saying all of these things, he turns and he says, with pathos and tears and sighs, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
And I read that and I think, you know, Lord, even in my, I'm a fallen man, I'm going to say things wrong, but even in my statements that I don't agree or where I think they're wrong, may I always seek to end my statements with compassion and empathy and love for people. That's what Jesus did. Therefore, please note this, that whoever wins on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, two weeks from now, in the local elections, in the state, in the national elections, brothers and sisters, we will pray for them, for their physical well-being, for their family to be protected, for them to make wise decisions. Because the Bible tells us to. It's very clear. In one of Paul's last letters in 1 Timothy 2, he talks about praying for those in authority. And I, when I read it, I kind of I kind of laugh because this is what he says. He says, he says, let's pray for those, for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He says, pray for those in authority. And this is why we pray. Pray that we will be able to live lives that are peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. In other words, pray that you would be able to worship freely and speak freely and love freely. That's what you pray. That the gospel would go out with power. That's what you pray. So we will pray. Number three in Micah, the third thing that happens when you see the greatness and the glory of the shepherd who stands and loves and cares for us is that, is that you rejoice in the kind provision of God. Look at verse 4. But, but, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In other words, this is saying that, that sit under his vine and his fig tree means that God will give rich provision, and he'll give rich provision in such a way that you will not live in fear. And I love this passage because the Bible says throughout that because God is king, we don't fear. That because God reigns, we don't fear. That because God is almighty and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't fear. If I did not believe, if you did not believe, if you read the Bible, if you did not believe, if we didn't believe that God, in some way that we don't understand now, but we'll fully understand in heaven, that God rules and he reigns and all things work together for the good of those who love him, if we did not believe that, we would be undone. I would but I say, God, you're in charge. I'm trusting you. I'm going to go forward in faith. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. But you're a God of rich provision, and I trust you. Therefore, I live without fear. Pray the Psalms. One extra Pray the Psalms. There's the Psalm. I love to pray the Psalms. I run out of things to pray pretty quickly, but the Psalms are a rich prayer book. So in Psalm 31... In Psalm 31, there, there's this statement about a man who is in, who's in, he's in trouble. Listen to some of the things he says. He says, Lord, please, verse 2, rescue me speedily. He says, verse 4, that my adversaries have laid out a net to catch my feet. He says, my years are spent with sorrow. 
and my years with sighing. He says, you know, I get up every day and all I do is sigh. I breathe out sorrows. He says, because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. I am an object of dread to my acquaintances. And those who see me in this, on the street flee from me. Now, I don't, I've never, I'm not going to take a poll, but if you've ever lived here, this is a tough place to live. I mean, your neighbors dread seeing you. When people see you coming down the street, they avert their gaze and go the other way. This guy's in a bad place. And he says this, he says, verse 12, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. There's nothing worse than just being ignored. That's him. There's no number to take at the ice cream shop. They just ignore you. I have become like a broken vessel. That's his nickname, broken vessel. I've always thought that Native Americans have really cool nicknames. You know, running bull, soaring eagle, big dog. In fact, let me just say this. We have some two granddads sitting over here. I thought several times, you know, when, when you're a dad or a mom, you're kind of your dad or mom. That's it, your daddy or dad or mom or mom. This is just an aside. But I think as grandparents, we can sometimes, granddads, we can kind of get on a, a, better, a, a better name. I mean, you know, Papa, Poo Poo, Pop. You know, those are just names. But see, but see you have a little bit of seniority. You, I, mean, I think I've always thought it would be cool to be called, instead of Papa, Running Bear. Yeah. Or Big Dog That Bites. That's just an aside, huh? So maybe Running Bear and Big Dog sitting over here. I'm glad to have you guys here today. So anyway, where was I? Oh, his nickname was Broken Vessel. Uh, 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 but, but in the midst of being nicknamed Broken Vessel, in the midst of having neighbors that avoid him, in the midst of being seen by his acquaintances in the street and they go the other way, this is what he does. This is what he does. Listen. He says, verse 15, my times are in your hands. Amen. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies. Number two, make your face shine upon your servant. Lord, shine your face upon me. Now, number three, he says, I'm going to, I says, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. He said, people call me a broken vessel and they run from me and they disdain me and they don't even give me any the time of day. But let me, tell, let me tell you, he says, God is good. He's watching over me. His face will shine upon me. And he stored up rich things for, for me, even in the midst of my pain. That's the way you pray. God can be trusted because God is good. And the fourth thing he says, we're worshipers. He says, other people go forward and they walk in the name of it's God, but we walk. We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. The only true God. And so, so he, he says, when you get a vision of the greatness of Jesus who stands and shepherds his people and loves them and, and cares for them, you love truth and you pursue it. You love peace and you pursue it. You rejoice in the provision of God and you worship. You worship. And when that happens, I think we'll be able to stay with Micah in verse 
8 of chapter, or first 3, verse 8. As for me, I am filled with the power of power by the, by the Holy Spirit and with justice and might. When we catch a vision of Jesus and we walk in the truth and love peace and rejoice in the provision and worship, we're able to say what Micah says in chapter 6, verse 8. I will do this. I will do justice and love mercy and I'll walk humbly with God. So, my encouragement is that we be people of prayer as we think about this week. And we realize that the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus. That the, the mountain that people stream to is the kingdom, it's the church. So, I've told you before that one of my, somebody that I really admire is, is a man who had very little education. He was 6'3", died in 1799. And, and in 1799, to be 6'3", was like being 6'7", today. He was a big man. He had really Herculean strength. He lost his father and mother at a very early age. He contracted smallpox in the Caribbean Basin and almost died. He was surveyor. He was in numerous battles where literally the horses were shot out from underneath him and there were bullet holes throughout his coat and he was never harmed. He was a man of searching integrity and a man that I admire greatly and his name was George Washington. So you think about George Washington and he, he, the war ended in 1783 really 1781, but this treaty was signed in 1783. And, and between 1783 and 1789, the country was forming and Washington really was being a farmer. He lost all of his money in the war, didn't take a salary. Um, after the war, a man named John Adams referred to him as your excellency. And Washington said, I'll have none of that. So we just fought a war to get away from your excellency and things like that. In fact, I'll just an aside, not all the troops did this, but it's with great joy I tell you that in the Revolutionary War, many of our troops marched into battle saying we have no king but Jesus. Anyway, so that's Washington. Washington became the first president, really by acclamation. Served eight years. And you think about it, you think, well, he had a golden era. Well, it wasn't a golden, it was hard. It was very, very hard. In fact, in 1791, two years into his presidency, there was something called the Whiskey Rebellion in the state of Pennsylvania that we, they thought was going to lead to a great, uh, a great rebellion. And Washington, with great sorrow, put on his uniform and was leading the troops again when the leaders of that movement stood down. But he gave a farewell address. I just want to read one paragraph from the farewell address in 1797. And this is what he said. And, and really, I, I believe, I've studied his life, I believe George Washington was a follower of Jesus and knew the reality of the cross. I, I believe that. In their age, when they would say religion, they meant the Christian faith. When they said providence, they meant, meant God. So, but listen to this. He says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, which should labor to subvert these great pillars of human 
happiness. These firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. He says that, that the Christian faith and living out that are indispensable supports. He says they are pillars of human happiness. And, and so let's pray to be gracious, kind, truth-speaking, truth-loving, peace-pursuing, rejoicing worshipers who represent Jesus to our culture and who pray for God's kingdom to advance in our day and age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this statement from the pen of a prophet who lived 800 years before Christ, who rejoiced in the coming Messiah out of Bethlehem, the Messiah who would stand in the strength of the Lord and shepherd his people. Do that in our lives, O Lord. Shepherd our hearts. Teach us your ways. Lord, in this culture, in this context, I plead and pray, God, have mercy upon your people so that we might represent you to those around us. I pray we would speak with tenderness and kindness. I pray we would be people of compassion. I pray we would evidence the reality of the Lord in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, come and teach and move in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.